Well, uh, my name is Timothy, and I am one of the pastors here. Uh, it is such a joy to be with you during this Advent season. If you have your Bibles or your phone, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Christmas is right around the corner, and uh, everywhere you look, there's Santa Claus and reindeers. Uh, you can't even check your email at work without getting some notice about a Christmas special somewhere that you just can't miss. Uh, I've gotten, I don't know if any of you are members of Costco, but every day I get a notice from Costco about some sale that's going to expire that you don't want to miss out on, and it's just going to blow your mind. And uh, so it may surprise you uh, to realize that like this in this season of, uh, uh, that we call Advent, it's actually not Christmas yet. Even though we're going to have our Christmas party today, it may surprise you to find that it's actually not Christmas season. You see, in the Christian tradition, we celebrate Advent before Christmas, and we celebrate Christ's coming on the 24th, and then we celebrate Christmas for the 12 days after his coming on the 24th. We as a church celebrate Advent because Advent is about preparation, while Christmas is about receiving. You see, in Advent, we go through the rhythms, the ritual, and the preparation of, receiving, of preparing ourselves for Christ's coming. Advent is about the time where we create space in our lives to receive the gift of God that we receive in Jesus Christ. Advent is about looking at our lives and creating space, slowing our lives down from the craziness of the world so we can look at what it would look like for God to come fully into our lives. And so this morning, while we think about Advent, we think about preparation, even as we look to Christmas and receiving Christmas is about receiving that which we have prepared ourselves for. This season that we are in is about preparing ourselves for the gift of God. And Christmas is about receiving that which we've prepared ourselves for. When you think about preparation, how do you prepare for something? How did you prepare for Thanksgiving? Did you go grocery shopping weeks in advance to make sure you didn't run out of the choice ingredients you needed for that special dinner? Did you clean out your home? Did you think about the people you were going to invite over or that, whose homes you were going over to? Did you think about the friends you were going to gather with and think about who you wanted to spend time with? How did you prepare for Thanksgiving? How are you preparing for Christmas? Are you looking up the specials every day? Are you looking up for the gifts that you want and creating your Santa wish list? Have you worked on your Amazon Christmas list so all your friends and family can look up what you want? How are you preparing for Christmas? How do you prepare for a special gathering with those you love? How would you prepare if the President of the United States invited you for dinner? You prepare differently when you're going to have President Biden or President Trump in your home than you would if you had me or Trevor in your home, hopefully. <laughs> you would prepare differently if you were going to have a special dinner with your wife or husband than if you were just sitting down playing with the kids. How do you prepare for something special that's going to happen in your life? What is your preparation for Christmas? Say about what you think about Christmas. What does your preparation for Christmas say about what you are looking forward to? What does your preparation for Christmas say that you are ready to receive in this season?
This morning's text is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning on this second week of Advent, we want to create space in our lives for more of you. We want to step into the ritual, the practice, and the rhythm of preparing our hearts for the gift of God that is in Jesus. Father, in a world that is busy and frantic, may we slow down. May we prepare our hearts, Father, to receive Jesus, who came to bring peace, but also the fall of nations, who came to bring wonder, but also the sword, who came to bring salvation, but also judgment. Father, in this moment, as we look to this text, may John lead us into our own preparation that the way to Christ might be more clear, that the way to our hearts would be opened for Jesus. Father, clear from our minds all the holiday franticness and the things that we clutter our lives with. And for these next few moments, draw us closer to you through the gift and the work of your Holy Spirit and through the power and wonder of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Matthew tells us that John was sent before Christ. It was prophesied through the prophet Isaiah that before the Messiah would come, someone would come before him to prepare the way. Uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us that in ancient Israel, they often didn't have paved roads. See, ancient Israel was so dry that as people would walk on the ground, they would beat down the dry ground. It was often hard packed. You didn't need to pave the road. 
but they put special stones and paved the road for the pathways that the kings would travel. So before a king or an official would enter into a city or an area, they would send people to go before them to make sure the road was ready. And in the same way, God says he's going to send someone to prepare the way for the Messiah. Before Christ would come, a, a forerunner would come, and John is his forerunner. John comes to prepare a way for Jesus. Jesus is already around. Jesus is alive. Jesus is eating, breathing, sleeping, going to synagogue, going to the temple. But Jesus' ministry has not yet started because John has not yet prepared the way. So John comes to prepare the way for us, for Jesus to come into the world and to start his ministry and to come declaring the goodness of God. But as John prepares the way, he goes to the wilderness. Do you ever wonder why the preparation would, belong, would begin in the wilderness? Could you imagine if Donald Trump had announced his run for the presidency in the middle of the Mojave Desert? Could you imagine what would have happened if President Biden tried to announce his run uh, in 2020 uh, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of desolation? or maybe in a, in a shantytown uh, of, of homeless people. Why does John prepare the way by beginning in the wilderness? Why does the way to God become prepared in the wilderness? Not in a palace, not at the temple, not at the synagogue, not in the places of power or wealth or affluence, but in the wilderness. I'd like to suggest, church, that sometimes it's only in the wilderness that we can actually have room for God. When you're at the top of your game, when you're trading stocks and making money, when, you're, when your research is booming and you're making discoveries that no one else has, when you have the creative vibe and you're creating music that nobody else has ever even dreamed of, when you're on the top of your ball game doing everything better than anyone else and super successful, it's really hard to see where you need God because there's so much of you. There's so much of us. There's so much of what's going right. There's so much of what we're doing and how things are going great that we often don't see our need for God. We often don't even see the ways in which we need God. You know, sometimes you can be so healthy you never even consider that maybe in your body you can have cancer or another illness because things are going so well. John prepares the way for Jesus in the wilderness. When God sends someone to call people to be prepared to receive the gift that is Jesus, he begins in the wilderness. And maybe for Advent Church, we need to spend a little bit more time in the wilderness. Maybe we need to lean in into those places in our life that aren't so well kept where there's not so much watering. Maybe we need to lean into the parts of our lives where there's a little bit more desolation than paradise. Maybe we need to think about those places in our lives that are a little bit more dry than well-watered. Maybe this season of Advent ought to cause us to look into our lives and to sit and maybe actually go into the wilderness. To go into those places in our lives that are too uncomfortable for us to ever spend a lot of time in. And yet, as God would prepare us for his coming, maybe we ought to go into the wilderness. But not just that. John says this. 
prepare the way, um, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As John calls the people in the wilderness to be ready for Christ's coming, he calls them to repentance. Repentance is a necessary preparation for Christ's coming. If you want to be ready to receive the gift of God that is in Christ Jesus, I like to suggest that not only do we need to spend time in the wilderness, but that we need to spend time in repentance. It's required preparation for Christ's coming. But what is repentance? Repentance is actually more than just being sorry. You see, repentance is, comes from the Hebrew for teshuva or teshva. It's about a return. It literally meant you're going one way and you turn around to go back. The, we're back. It's a return. The, the Hebrew word meant to return and it became the practice of repentance because it was turning from one thing and making a whole life change. You're going one way and you turn around. Repentance is about meaningful change. That's so much harder for us, isn't it, church? We like to hold on to our sin and to sanitize it. We like to take the things that we know we do that are hurtful to others, and we try to window dress it so it's not so bad. We, we harm other people. We sin against God. We sin against ourselves, and we often make excuses about how it's actually not that bad or how we'll make it a little bit better. We'll soften the blow. We do things we know we shouldn't. We pursue things we don't really want to, but then we just say, oh, we'll just do it for an hour today. Those of you who struggle with addiction understand this. You, you lie to yourself by saying you'll do it, but you'll just do it a little. And there's so many areas in our lives where, we, where this happens. And repentance doesn't allow us the luxury of window dressing. Repentance doesn't allow us to say, we're just going to keep a little bit of that thing. It doesn't allow us to say, we're going to sin, but sanitize it and window dress it. It doesn't allow us to say, we're going to do this bad thing, but then make up for it by giving more money to the church. It doesn't allow us to say, we'll treat someone some way, but then we'll say, oh, bless their soul. Repentance requires us to actually turn. You're going one way, and you turn around. Repentance causes us to make meaning change. In the season of Advent, part of preparing ourselves for Christ is to be in the wilderness, but to think about the places in which we actually need to turn around. We're going one way, and we need to turn around. And repentance is about starting that process of turning, about making meaningful change, rather than holding on to the concept of just window dressing and glossing over. You know, uh, when, speaking of preparation, people are coming over and I don't actually want to clean the house. I lift up the carpet and sweep the dust under. Ever done that? Uh, 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 people are coming over and I forgot to brush my teeth, so I just used the Listerine. Uh, ever done that? Or uh, uh, you're about to go to an important meeting and you woke up late, so rather than actually taking a shower, you just throw on the deodorant. Or maybe you know people are coming over at the end of the week and the water damage on the wall you didn't take care of, you just paint over rather than actually dealing with. You see, we, we do this in so many places of our lives, but Advent calls us instead to turn and to begin to reorient and give ourselves to God rather than just glossing over 
and painting over those things in our lives. Going on, it says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John's a little quirky, right? I mean, imagine if, uh, if Trevor this, or I came this morning wearing uh, camel's hair and a leather belt, and we offered all of you some locusts and wild honey. You'd think we were a little strange, right? And believe it or not, they did too, okay? The Jews thought this was strange as well. And in, and in the wilderness, they go to him, though. All these people come. And what do they do? It says they confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. As John pairs the way for Jesus, he goes into the wilderness. He calls the people to repentance. And the Bible tells us they go. They actually go. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Imagine if for the next three weeks before Christmas, in honor of this text and the Advent season, we had a confession of sin extravaganza. <laughs> Church service for the next three weeks is going to be about confessing our sins and repenting. Imagine a whole nother three weeks of confessing our sins and t- repenting. How many of you would like to invite your friends? Hey, come to church with me. We're celebrating Christmas. It's Advent season. We're going to have a confession service. What would you do if we told you that on Christmas Eve, we were going to have the biggest, longest, deepest confession service you've ever been to? Would you think twice about maybe going somewhere else? Would the cold seem that much more of a barrier? We're not outdoor anymore, so you don't have to worry about that. But... This is what happens as people hear the call in the wilderness, as they repent, as they enter in this turning, they confess their sins, and they are baptized by John in the Jordan River. They confess their sins. Confession is an acknowledgement of who you are before God, owning the things you have done, and laying them in acknowledgement before God. But baptism represents a burial and a cleansing and starting a new life. You cleanse. The, the Jews would, would go into these mikvat pools, and they'd go down into the water, wash, and they'd come out on the other side clean. And it was a remembrance that you're washing all those things off, and you're going to live anew. You see, it wouldn't make sense to get all dirty, to go in the water, and then to come out and do exactly the same thing you did. The idea of, of, of confession was acknowledging your sins and brokenness, but you can acknowledge your sins and brokenness and never repent. You can hurt somebody and do something and not actually repent. You can acknowledge how hurtful you were, but not actually change. Ever experienced that? In your own life, it's much easier sometimes to just acknowledge you did something bad, and by acknowledging it, you think you did something about it. But for the person on the other end, all you did was say what you did. And in the same way, As John calls the people to repentance, they confess, but in their baptism, they acknowledge that they're dying, they're surrendering, they're cleaning, they're starting anew. And the call of God to each and every one of us isn't just to confess our sins, but to begin the process of walking anew. As you think about preparing your hearts this Advent season for the coming of Christ, 
You enter into your wilderness places and you begin the process of turning back to God. And in doing so, you can't help but confess your sins. And in baptism, we receive that cleansing of God to walk anew. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. This is quite an amazing thing. You're in the wilderness. You're just John. And to this little wilderness experience, the religious leaders of Israel come. And as they're coming, rather than saying, see, even they agree with what I'm preaching, rather than saying, this is the acknowledgement that the leadership of Israel agrees with what I'm preaching, John calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them a brood of vipers. You snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You get this sense that he is saying that their lives were actually not in alignment with the values they espoused. You get the sense that he's saying that maybe there's a little bit too much window dressing in their lives. There's too much sanitation of sin, but there's actually not meaningful change. There's a sense where the way they're living doesn't actually fit the values they espouse. There's something that's happening internally that doesn't match what they say they're about. Things that are happening that don't match what they're supposed to be embodying. And in a sense, there's something that's disconnected in their lives. Does that ever represent us? Is there ever a disconnect where the fruit doesn't actually bear repentance? That the things that comes out of our lives doesn't match the things that we say we're about? There's something that's disconnected in their lives, and John recognizes that. And so John says, Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. When I think about this phrase from John, I think of three things. And I think there are three things I struggle with. One is religious complacency. Have you ever become religiously complacent? You see, they said, hey, we have Abraham as our father. And that was kind of an excuse not to have to pursue faith and faithfulness. It became an excuse not to have to give a wholehearted pursuit of God. Because you could say, hey, I have Abraham as my father. I don't have any work to do. Abraham did it all for me. And there was a sense that they allowed that to become a religious complacency. But not only that, they, they bought into religious entitlement. To some degree, they thought God owed it to them because they were Abraham's children. They thought that God owed them something because of their lineage. They thought that God owed them benefits and blessing because they had, become, they had been the children of Abraham. And then lastly, they had become religious snobs, religious snobbery. Because Abraham was their father, they could look down on others. And I wonder, church, if sometimes in our faith we've we, we've bought into this because we're Christian and because we know that God has loved us and sent his son to die for us, we feel like we don't actually have to be that committed to our faith. Or maybe we think that God owes it to us because we put our faith in Jesus. Or maybe we, maybe we, maybe we have become religious snobs 
thinking that we are better than other people because of our spiritual lineage. I wonder, church, if the call of Advent this year for us is to think about the ways in which we have become complacent, entitled, snobs. You know what's crazy? He says that God can raise up children from stones. Stones are inanimate. They don't do a darn thing. They just sit there. And imagine if God can raise up children from stones. How much more can God use a person, though imperfect, who wants to seek him? How much more can God use somebody in a different Christian denomination who is trying to seek God? We dare not become the kind of snobs who say that if you don't think like us and do what we do, that somehow we're better. We don't think that just because we haven't figured out that God owes it to us. We recognize that in our own lives, there's this tendency to become entitled, to be complacent, and to become somewhat spiritual snobs. And in the season of Advent, maybe we start to say, hey, I want to let go of that complacency. I want to replace that complacency with something else, and I will turn from it. Maybe then rather than having a spirit of entitlement, I'm going to remember what it's like to be blessed rather than owed by God. Maybe rather than looking down on the faith of others, I start to realize that I too need God just as much as they do. And we start to turn and recreate more room for God in our lives. Going on, John says, or Matthew says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew said, John says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This church is really discomforting. It's also easily misunderstood. It is really easy to think John, John is telling us to work harder, to work better, and to do more. Just think about it. I've just talked about repenting and confessing and not being complacent. And then now you hear every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And there's this tendency that all of us will be like, oh my gosh, I need to worry now about everything I've done wrong. And then I need to work harder. And, and all the places I've worked hard to do good, I have to work even harder and do more. Right? Some of you will resonate because that's how you relate to God. You've had this sense that this verse produces anxiety in you because it makes you want to work harder, do more. And I'm not saying hard work is bad. I'm not saying not to think about the quality of your work. But keep in mind, John is saying this to the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the religious leaders who've given most of their days and lives to understanding the law, to figuring out, figuring out nuances of it. These are the people who, who went to synagogue, who went to all the religious festivals of the temple. They prayed more than three times a day. They fasted. Not only that, they not only gave their tithe, they did the second and third tithes. When you read the Old Testament, there wasn't just one tithe, so they didn't just give 10%. They did the 10%, they did the second tithe, and sometimes they did the third tithe. These people did all the right things. And I'd like to suggest that part of what, what John is saying is that as they were doing these religious things, 
their lives were not transformed. You see, even as he talked about how they needed to produce fruit in accordance with repentance, and then he talks about good fruit, these guys were doing, these guys and gals were doing the good things that they were called to, but internally their lives weren't being transformed. Their lives weren't actually being changed. They weren't actually becoming more like God. And in a sense, this is a reminder that our insides matter. Our insides matter. As we think about all the things we're doing, maybe we ought to ask about what our lives are becoming in the midst of our doing. Maybe instead of looking at just the the running around and the performance, ask if our lives are being transformed. You know, there's, there's a lot we do outwardly that we don't like, and they don't represent who we are. But sometimes, as we're doing them, we can allow our lives to be changed by them. You know, I don't know if anybody likes to wake up at 3 in the morning with a kid who's coughing and vomiting. And all of you who have parents have done this at some point. You can either, lean, you can either do it begrudgingly or in a moment of clarity, you realize that you're becoming to them what God has been to you. And you can fall in love with a God who would sit with you in your vomiting and in your coughing and in your disruptions of their lives and be so grateful to have you in their arms. You can, in the midst of those moments, embrace the opportunity to become more like God. You can allow your lives to be changed so that who you are is becoming more like Jesus. And so what you're doing is no longer just an outward action but it's an expression of a transformed life that is becoming more and more like Jesus. As we think about what it means to be this people who produce fruit that is good, it's not just about the outward actions. Have you ever got like one of those apples that looked so good? Or I, I get this more with avocados. Avocados are so frustrating to me. Avocados end up being temperamental. A few years ago, there was this weird like frost that hit central California. And so all the avocados felt really good, and, and when you pick them up on the outside, and they would feel really ripe, and when you cut them open, they, were really not, they tasted terrible. And the avocado crop that year was terrible, because on the outside, everything looked great, but on the inside, it wasn't, because they weren't nurtured by the right environment. Well, in the same way, we can do all the right things, church, on outwardly, but if we don't actually create room on the inside, if we don't allow our lives to be changed, we won't be transformed, and the fruit won't actually be good. So it's not just about working harder. I'm not telling you this morning to work harder. I'm not telling you to do more. But I am asking you to lean into the things you do that you might be transformed into who God would have you to be. But here's the hope we have. John goes on. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, even in John's acknowledgement to the people that they would need to start to turn, he acknowledges that the process of turning and changing is not our own. You see, even as you start to create space for Christ, you start to open up. God gives us the gift of Christ who fills us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then empowers us to turn and change and to be transformed. There's this great hope. You see, God doesn't just sit there and say, I hope you start changing. Get it together. 
Learn from your mistakes. Why are you doing this again? Are we still here? Why is it still a problem? No, rather than standing over us like that, God fills us with his living presence through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, that the things we do might not be lifeless and performancy, but that they might actually reflect a change, a transformation and a becoming of who we are as God's people. That we don't just receive the gift of God and then go our merry ways living life as it was, but that somehow through the gift of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that we've created more room, we've asked him to fill more and more places of our lives, that those wilderness places, those places that are dry, those places that we've just tried to sanitize, that we open them up to God and we allow his Holy Spirit to come into them and to start working change, that we think about the gift of God that we receive on Christmas. We've created space in our life. We've started to open up those spaces. We've started to uncover them, and we've invited him to have a place in our lives so that when Christ comes and we receive him as the gift, we've created space in him rather than just saying, hey, we're going to keep this part of our lives the way it is but you can have this little piece of us over here. But instead, we expand our lives. We confess, we open, and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might more fully walk in his ways. John ends by saying, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The judgment of God is a gift. It's a gift to us individually. It's a gift to us collectively. Because as God separates those who are his from those who are not, as he cleans out the things in our lives that are his and the things that are not, we receive a gift and we get to walk in peace. We got to walk in hope and we get to walk in joy. But the call of God is not to just be ourselves. The call of God is not just to pat ourselves on the back and say, good job. The call of God is not to just say, do what you've been doing, but go to church and give more money. The call of God is not just to sanitize over what we've been doing, to paint over them and to go our merry way, but to be prepared to receive the gift of God in Christmas is to spend time preparing our lives, to go to the wilderness, to spend time in repentance, to confess our sins, and to open our lives more and more to the Holy Spirit.